Alrighty, let's grab our Bibles and turn, please, to the book of John. I know that's probably a big surprise to all of you. We have been working our way through the book of John uh, for quite some time at this point. And today we come to the final passage in the 8th chapter, the final passage in the 8th chapter. So John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. It is very easy for humanity to interact with God on their own expectations, right? Everyone has all these expectations. God will give me what I want if I just do good things. Maybe God will be happy if I do moral things. We don't like being surprised by God if we're perfectly honest, as human beings. We want God to be something predictable. We want God to be something that we can hopefully control in some ways. This is how some people look at prayer. A way to make God do a certain thing or a way to make God happy. Those expectations, of course, are called in by Scripture, which describes for us the nature of prayer and the posture of it being one of humility of insisting on God's will rather than our own, because we know how given we are to think that our will is best, that we think we know what's best for us, that we think we understand the heart of God. In reality, as the scriptures always bear out, we don't know the heart of God. The things that we would prefer often aren't actually the best. And the things that we'd prefer aren't naturally the things that glorify God. And so when we make up our minds to follow the Lord as fallen humans, sometimes we get very, very surprised by who God truly is. This is actually in many of my prayers, that I would worship God as he reveals himself to be rather than as I would prefer him to be. It is a challenge to all of us because it's one of those things that sneaks into our theology quite often, doesn't it? We would rather God be this way or that way that it wouldn't make us uncomfortable. We would hope that when Christ shows up, that we would be doing exactly as we ought to, believe exactly as we ought to, and carry on our lives exactly as we ought to. But the reality is, even in Christ, we will be surprised by who our God truly is. You will be surprised by who is in heaven with you and who is not. We will be thoroughly surprised because we only see in part. But to insist on that above the revelation of God is always dangerous. Today we run into the crowds that reacted to Jesus of Nazareth showing who he is without veil and them rejecting him because they would rather their theology than God himself. That's a warning. It's a big warning. Because from their perspective, they couldn't possibly be wrong. And from Jesus' perspective, they couldn't be more wrong. I want you to see it. And I want us to be challenged to humility this day. It's something I pray for often, and I encourage you to do so. Let's stand in honor of God and his word, and let's read this passage. John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. Oh, goodness. We can't jump right into that, can we? 
Let's, let's back up to verse 45. We're starting in verse 48, but we'll back up to 45 to get a bit of the context. Jesus says to these false believers, he says, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God, and the reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. This is where we pick up. Then the Jews, this expands it to the whole crowd, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And she said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. And then the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar just like you are. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not even fifty years old yet. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Father, we are grateful for this passage. We seek not just the low things, just to understand what your word says, but Father, we seek the high things, to love what your word says. We seek even higher things, Father, that each other would love what your word says and reveals about yourself, your nature, your desires. Father, would your spirit continually work on our hearts that we share those same desires deep within our own souls. We pray this, Father. We know that we are not capable of it on our own. But just as your spirit inspired these words at the hand of John, we pray that he illumine them to our hearts and give us right concern and right desires. Deep are the needs of our lives, and deep are the needs of our souls, and you meet them all. We pray, Father, that we share the same conviction of Christ that he has of himself, we pray that you work on our hearts this day in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You may well be seated. I heard some of you snicker when Jesus is talking. It's a, uh, it's a kind of an in-your-face type of challenge, isn't it? He's standing there. This is at the tail end of the Feast of Booths. He's still standing in the temple, and he is announcing to them and constantly discussing with them all of the things pertaining to himself. And people don't want to hear this. Honestly, nobody wants to hear this because what's coming down to them is all these habits that you've been doing, all the words that you've been reading, all of them, if you don't see that they're pointing to me, have been fruitless. It'd be akin to God showing up at the end of the world and we go, this isn't how I expected it, therefore I'm not going to follow you. 
What Jesus is saying here is that this is revealing the hearts of the people. You say, well, wasn't it veiled to them? Wasn't it? I mean, have you ever wondered? I wondered this when I was growing up, right? If, if I was, say, a teenager during uh, all of this, and, and I had all of these things that I was taught since my youth, I had the Old Testament scriptures, and then I just missed Jesus. And I just continued on in my Jewish traditions. What would have become of me? What Jesus is pointing out is, to follow the scriptures rightly is to not miss the word of life himself. You say, well, but how could I depend on my own perspective for that? Ah, it's the lesson. You can't. You can't. It's not based on information. It's not based on simple exposure. Look at Simeon. Look at Anna. These stories that are told to us to express that it is not about how much we have worked out about this. It's who God reveals himself to. And it is who God is saving, regardless of what information they have. We even see from Simeon's own mouth, don't we? He only understood in part. All he could see in the face of Jesus as an eight-day-old baby in that same temple where he is in this text was the consolation of Israel. Finally, a light for your people. Very different mindset than what actually occurred. But true nonetheless. Seeing in part, glorifying God and not missing his chosen one. Here, standing in front of a whole crowd of Jews, standing in front of their leaders who continually challenge and continually are presented with both the word of God on the lips of Jesus Christ and the works of the Holy Spirit in his hands and in his feet, rejecting both. You say, well, how clear did he make it? Very. Clear enough to the woman in Samaria with only part of the scriptures still able to perceive who Jesus is after a short conversation. And then after a three-day stay in Sychar, many Samaritans followed Jesus. Clear enough for the Syrophoenician woman to come and see Jesus as the sole hope for salvation for her family. Clear enough for all who will call upon the Lord to be saved to find salvation in Christ. You say, well, what about for all of those other ones that have clarity but don't turn to Christ? Correct. That is a concern, isn't it? And it's something that John is about to turn our attention to. Those who will commit themselves to skepticism rather than faith in Christ. You say, well, isn't skepticism good? To a point. But not when it deals with God? No. Skepticism for skepticism's sake is never a healthy choice. Skepticism in times when you're dealing with something that could be erroneous is. But in reality, they are faced one-on-one with the word of God walking around, doing the works of God in undeniable fashion. We'll read in the very next chapter of Jesus healing a man that was born blind, something that everyone knew, right in front of their face. And them going, well... We have to deny him somehow because he doesn't line up with us. And so they find reason. He said, well, that's fine in the works, but where does he explicitly call himself God? Welcome to today's text. What he has said in part and what he has said in illusions and types and shadows, now he says openly to their face. 
And he does it at their prodding. And I want you to see it because it's one of those passages, if somebody says that Jesus never claimed to be God, you can take them right to this passage. There's nobody that has any serious interpretation about this passage that denies what Jesus is claiming here. If you know Greek, you can be well suited to see exactly what he's working with here, where he's quoting from, and what he is alluding himself to. We will address all of them. But let's get started because uh, I'm sure you have Memorial Day plans. John chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered him. Obviously, Jesus has just come out of this discussion with those who believed in Christ for about 10 minutes. And Jesus then brings them to the end of that small belief and says, look, the word of God is not settling in your hearts. Why? It's not because you haven't heard it. It's because you're not of God. You can wrestle with that phrasing all you want. But that's not today's passage. That's last week, so you can go listen to that. Verse 48, the Jews answered him and says, are we not right in saying that you were Samaritan and have a demon? Now, there's, there's little else that you could say to a Jewish rabbi that would be more insulting to his face. And here Jesus doesn't take the insult, but that's what they were trying to do, goad him. Make him lose his temper. Make him angry at them, right? You're a Samaritan, you have a demon. This is not a legitimate response. He's not a Samaritan. That, that's somebody who lives and worships on Mount Gerizim, who lives in the northern Old Kingdom. Everyone knows who he is. They know his mother and his father, as has already been stated before. He grew up in Nazareth. Nobody good can come from there. He was born in Bethlehem. Everyone knows this history. It's not a serious response. It's a way to dismiss him in front of the crowds. You're Samaritan. You have a demon. doesn't matter that we've seen you cast out demons. We're just going to call you the possessor of a demon and also one who comes from Samaria. We'll take political aspects, that's what the whole Samaritan thing, and religious aspects, that's what the demon thing is, and hurl them at you and see what sticks. It's no different. see this kind of stuff happen all the time. We're going to go into election year next year, if you're not aware. That is, if you don't have a radio or a television or internet or a phone or anything like that. I envy you for the next year, so you don't have to worry about hearing about all that. But those types of things happen all the time. Politically, we reject you. Spiritually, we reject you. We'll hurl anything. See what sticks, right? Jesus answered and says, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I just love it because his answer to them is no. They say yes, he says no. There, it's, it's, a, it's an exact met with the exact amount of proof that was given. That's actually how you refute such things. I don't have a demon. I honor my father and you dishonor me. Hmm. That's an interesting response. He doesn't even address the Samaritan thing at all. Why? We'll address that in a second. Why does he respond this way? One, I don't have a demon. And two, I honor my father. And you dishonor me. It's the first stage in clearing up the miscommunication. I can't have a demon. Look who I am honoring. Demons do not honor the father, the God of Israel. They fight against him. I honor him, and your response to that is to dishonor me. To bring what I am clearly pushing everyone towards, which is the God of Israel, and you fight against me in that. What is that, epi- or what is that evidence of? We see it in 1 John. One of the reasons why we love one another is why? 
Not only because God has first loved me, but God has loved us. We love one another because God loves that person, and so must I. If we see someone honoring God on his terms, we should not be dishonoring that person, should we? It's exactly what Jesus points out. You're claiming to serve the same God of Israel that I'm claiming to honor, and yet you're fighting against me. Why? Why? That's not how this works. I don't have a demon. I honor my father. And you dishonor me because of this. I don't even seek my own glory. Then he turns it around. There is one who seeks my glory. There is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. In other words, I don't answer to you. Be this encouragement to every Christian. We hold one another accountable, but ultimately our lives are lived in service to a singular God Almighty before whom we will all stand or fall. And if we are in Christ, who is able to make us stand? He is. Not because of our goodness, not because of what we've accomplished, but because of his sacrifice and love for us. And because of that, we stand or fall. Not because of what we've accomplished, not because of our reputation, not because of our schooling or any other such thing. No. Jesus says, I do not even seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, he takes their accusation as a Samaritan and as one who is possessed by a demon, and he turns it around to deny the demonness, to establish who he is honoring, and therefore they are obligated to honor him. And who is seeking to glorify Christ? Not himself, but the Father, who is the ultimate judge. What is he claiming? Pretty high stuff. And he bypasses the claimant that he's a Samaritan altogether. One, there's no answer for it, other than to deny it. But two, what's wrong with being a Samaritan? At this point in the Gospel of John, we have been faced with the reality that more Samaritans have come to Christ to follow him than Jewish people. Look at John chapter 4. It wasn't just the woman at the well in Sychar that, uh, sorry, is my daughter waving at me? It's a reflex. I was just waving back. (laughs) Didn't even think about it. And the train has derailed. Hang on a second. Thank you, John 4. The woman at the well, the woman from Sychar, isn't the only one who recognizes him as Messiah. She takes him back to Sychar and says, there's a guy down at the well. He's told me everything about me. By the way, just by one observation, it was impossible for anyone but God to know outside of Sychar. Could this be the Messiah? And through that witness, Jesus and his very, very reluctant disciples spent three days in Samaria. And it says, many in the city followed Christ. What's wrong with being a Samaritan? Nothing. In fact, Samaria, if you're not aware, in the book of Acts, takes a very significant place 
in the position of God's gospel going out into the world. The story of the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Yes, they are our neighbors. Yes, they compromise. Yes, they have the wrong version of the scriptures. Yes, they only pay attention to the Samaritan Pentateuch and only the first five books and only their version of it, which places them at the corner of of God's salvation's history. And what this woman in Sychar had learned was, if I have the Messiah standing in front of me, who cares if we were right? Who cares if we had Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion? That was the question she wanted from Messiah. She says, wait a second, you're Messiah? I perceive that you're a prophet. If you're the Messiah, solve the age-old question that we've had for 800 years between us and the Jewish people. Who is right? Is it Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion? That would answer which Pentateuch is right. That would answer which scriptures are right, which ones are laid up on which temple are right, which temple is correct, and which sacrifices have been effective. Huge solution. She's asking just the right question. Except when Messiah comes, he's going to change the entire economy of the temple itself. And so what is Jesus' answer to her? The time is coming when soon it won't be either. He does say, well, salvation is from the Jews. So he does answer her question, by the way. It's Mount Zion. But the Father is seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit, capital S, and truth, capital T. The Father is seeking those who worship him by the third person of the Trinity and the second. And it will no longer be that you will worship him on this mountain or on that Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he expresses to her the new coming age that will come after him in the wake of his salvific act. She goes back. Samaritans come to salvation. And the way John lays out his gospel, he's showing us that by contrast, while salvation was from the Jews, more in Samaria came to Christ than came to Christ in these cities. He's standing in the temple in Jerusalem, on the right mountain, and they're all looking for the wrong person. This is what I've always come back to and said. My, my pastor growing up always had a way of talking about the Pharisees and the Jews at the time that rejected Christ. You had the right stuff packed, you had the right bags, you were on the right dock, and the only thing you missed was the boat. The Samaritans were on the wrong dock. They had some of the right clothing, some of the right bags, but at least they got on the boat of Christ. And so when these Jews pride themselves, we're not Samaritans, you are. Jesus doesn't even respond to it. They would have been better off if they were Samaritans, according to how John is telling the gospel. Jesus says it stands or falls, not on which temple you're standing in, or on what nation you're from. Verse 51, truly, truly, and this is why he turns the whole thing on its head. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's easy enough to refute. And so the Jews come up and say it. The Jews said to him, now we are certain that you have a demon. The very thing you just denied. Now we are certain that you have a demon. And they give him a great historical proof of this. 
Good systematic theology, right? Abraham died. Well, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father, Abraham? Our father, not yours, Samaritan. Are you greater than our father, Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who exactly are you making yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Now, before we move on to his insults, let's sit on that statement for just a second. Jesus himself, let's delve into a little bit of Christology here. Jesus himself is God and man. He is the only one to have lived a perfect human life. That includes Adam and Eve. They lived an innocent human life for just a time. Christ is the only one to have experienced perfect humanity because sin is not part of the human condition. Sin was added on and it's destroying us. The human condition, the, the point in the essence of being a human doesn't actually involve sin. So Jesus isn't less a human because he doesn't sin. He's actually more of a human because he doesn't sin. And that's one of these things that gets pointed out. And so here we are saying it is not that his divinity prevents him from glorifying himself. Rather, it is his humanity that prevents this. That means the more perfect a human is, let me just apply it across the board, take it out of theology speak. The more perfect a human is, And the closer to God they are, the less they will glorify themselves. Beware the human who glorifies themselves. Beware the proud. For God resists such things. God resists the proud and gives grace to who? A humble Christ, the most perfect human. Born in a stable to peasants. Humble. Being found in human form, he what? According to Philippians 2, humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death in all points, at all times, all the way to death, even the death of the cross. Humility the entire way. Lest we should think that such humility only belongs to Christ, it belongs to all who follow in his steps. It should be our number one virtue that we have humbled ourselves in the sight of the Lord while we wait for him to lift us up. And here Jesus expresses the same thing. He, in his incarnation, is not only God, and I say that in the way that you could only supply that to Christ, He is also human, which means in his incarnation, he will not glorify himself. Instead, he says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. And he takes their quote about their belongingness to God, whom he knows not only personally, but is personally, and says, this God that you claim to have as your God is the one who is glorifying me. 
You don't know him. I know him. You don't know God, he says. Verse 55, you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say I do not know him, I'd be lying, just like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. And then he takes the opportunity to take their challenge to them. Remember, their challenge is based on this basic concept of chronology. You're not even 50 yet. How could you say you were existing before Abraham? Or how can you say that you were around for Abraham? Are you greater than our father Abraham? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw and was glad. The Jews said to him, you are not even 50 years old yet. Have you seen Abraham? This is a remarkable thing that actually several people have disagreements over. Some people actually believe that God showed Abraham the days of the Messiah to know what this was all leading up to 2,000 years beforehand. There's Jewish writers who argued this before the New Testament ever came. So this isn't just Christians writing about this. That's conjecture. The scriptures don't say that clearly. It really seems to be a more general statement to the fact that what Abraham was focused on was the promise of God some point in the future. With almost a non-specificity that there is a plan of God to save humanity in some way that through my offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Whatever that looks like, seems Abraham was joyful in it. We see the effects of that, and that is the position I hold on this. We see the effects of that in Hebrews 11. One of the examples of Abraham's faith was that he refused to build a house all the years that he lived. He wanted to only live in a tent, and Hebrews 11 says why. Because he did not want to distract from the city that God was going to build. He refused to live in a house because he was looking for the city whose builder and maker was God. And so he chose to live in his entire life in a tent to remind himself every day when he woke up, one day there is a city that God will build. And I don't want to define myself only by what things I can build. And that's really important for Abraham. He doesn't want to even define himself only by the children he can have. Remember, Abraham, Sarah, he tried to have a child after the, you know, trying to make the promise fulfilled through Hagar. That didn't go out so well. But then the reality is that all of this history, the Jewish people lob all the way back to Abraham. And what is it that is said? Abraham is our father. Maybe in the physical sense, but true children of Abraham are by faith. They follow. If you truly were Abraham's descendants, you would be doing the works of Abraham. You would be faithful to God, no matter what it took, no matter how much it changed. I mean, think about it. Abraham was an idol worshiper. He was living in Ur, Mesopotamia. He was a Bedouin, living in tents already, owning all sorts of things. And then one day, God showed up to him and showed him who he was. And Abraham, from that day on, followed him. He promised that there is a land that he would give him. How much of that land did Abraham ever enjoy in his lifetime? Very, very, very little. Only enough basically to put a grave for his wife and himself on. 
That's not much. But he committed his life into the hands of him who knew far more than him. And Jesus is saying, you put all of this on Abraham, who you say is your father. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The undertone is, before he says it explicitly, yes, I'm greater than Abraham. Who do you think promised all this to Abraham? Where do you think it came from? And he's about to, well, let's just say blow their minds. The Jews said to him, you are not even 50 years old yet. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And if Jesus was lying about that claim of divinity, they would be right in picking up stones to kill him. It is explicitly saying, not that he is a God, but that he is the God of Israel. Do you know where that terminology comes from? I'll give you a hint. Book of Exodus. Can you think of where God calls himself this exact name? The burning bush. You think that Abraham is greater than me because he came before me in chronology? Let me tell you something. Who do you think spoke to Moses out of the bush? Who do you think showed up as the captain of the Lord's host, Joshua? Or to Samson's parents? You think that's bad enough? Who do you think sat down to eat lamb with two angels at Abraham's front door before I sent my angels down to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it? Who do you think shut the door to the ark? Who do you think confused the speech of those at the tower? Who do you think walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden, or excuse me, walked with Adam in the cool of the day in the garden? Who do you think saves his people? Who do you think gave them bread to eat? Who do you think visited the prophets in prisons? Who do you think was walking around? in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who do you think visited Jeremiah? Who do you think Ezekiel saw? John, in the next chapter, is about to show us this. Who do you think Isaiah saw, whose train of robe filled the temple, who fell on his face in front of him? Who do you think this is all about? Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. Before he was, I exist. Now, if you've been going through the Gospel of John, this is nothing new to your ears. It's new from Jesus' lips. But John starts off his Gospel by going all the way back to the creation and saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Word was 
God. All things were made through him. There was nothing that was made that was not made through him. He goes on for all of these verses to finally said that word who is the light the life of men that very word himself became flesh and dwelt among us John writes we have seen him our eyes have seen the eternal word of god the second person of the blessed trinity walking around in human form with us life emanates from him wherever he goes Miracles weren't just attesting to who he is. They were showing that God, in his fullest expression of nature, brings life to that which is dying. Trust in him, because there's no other life to hope in. There's no other source to hope in. There's no other life out there. It would be akin to saying, let's go to the week of creation. And we go, I really want to enjoy this creation, but I don't want to do it through anything that God made. I'll make my own light, my own dirt, my own water. I'll separate all that. I'll make my own animals, my own fish, my own birds, my own humans. We'll just enjoy the creation. I think it was funny when somebody was talking about trying to theorize how to make amino acids out of dirt and all this kind of stuff so we can work our way up to life. And then someone just pointed out, no, 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 you get to make your own dirt. You don't get to start with something God made. It's a snarky response to that. That makes me happy. Because the reality is we can't even think about a reality that isn't made by God. And then for us to take what God has made, however he does it in his eternal wisdom, to put us here, and then to throw it back in his face and say, not good enough, or doesn't line up with my expectations enough, is no different than their response to him. He, as the very word of God, who spoke creation into existence through him, is telling them something, and the response is, not good enough. I don't like your words. I don't like what you're saying. I don't like what it says about me. I like to depend on the fact that Abraham is my father. And what does John the Baptist say to them? God can make children of Abraham out of rocks. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And Jesus, what does he say? Same thing. Repent, he says. To the Jewish people, you have need of repentance. Belief on the gospel. Why? Because your ethnicity, your background, your ancestors, not enough. Either God is your father. Or someone else is. And it doesn't matter how great they are. It doesn't matter how famous they are. What we're learning is that while Abraham is great... His grandson is far greater. Jesus, born after the flesh by the people of Israel, demonstrates himself to, yes, be far superior to Abraham, even, yes, the object of Abraham's faith. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, and then he spells out in Greek, ego I me, He's expressing himself as the personal God of Israel. He's only hinted at this in some places. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the bread that comes out of heaven. And all of these things here, he states it outright. 
Not only did I exist before Abraham, I currently am existing before Abraham. Now, before you try to figure that out and break your brain, nope, we can't figure that out. This is where our words stop and our mind stops and our perspective stops. What we do know is this. If we are going to claim life based on who we are, what country we come from, what language we speak, who our fathers are, who our ancestors were, any other thing, we will find ourselves found wanting. But if we settle on Christ and find in him the sufficiency of all things, it doesn't matter what this world throws at us. Exactly as Jesus said to us, we may lose all manner of things in following him, even our own lives, but what does he say? Those who lose their life for my sake will truly find it. It'll be worth it. Why? Because the death that comes to us will not even be death. Isn't this what he promised? If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. That doesn't mean Christians don't physically die. It means we will not come to an end. That the life that he gives us lasts for eternity. It is very common in the church to talk about eternal life as a matter of heaven. It isn't. Eternal life is a matter of salvation onward. God gives us a life that doesn't end. Christian, you're already living it. You know the Holy Spirit that's living inside you? Bringing virtue out of what used to be your nothing but cobweb death-filled heart? Thank God for that virtue. Thank God for those good works that he is working in us day by day and growing us up into the image of Christ. Why? Because that is eternal life breaking through here in these mortal bodies. This mortal will put on immortality. This fallible will put on infallibility. And one day we will see the Lord without dim glasses. But here... Here in a world of incorrect theology and inaccurate statements about God's nature, there we will see in full, here we see in part. And here now the application of humility. If God in his word surprises you with who he is, don't fall back on your assumptions. Submit to him. Humble yourself. What if God says he is other than I would prefer? Who's wrong and who's right in that equation? Whose humility and whose glory do we seek? If we are claiming to follow in Christ's footsteps, which is literally what Christian means, little Christs, then we are to say we will walk humbly with our God and we will not seek our own glory, but instead we will be grateful for what our God is doing in gifting us life. A sure sign that you have not known Christ is pride. A sure sign that you have not known Christ is ingratitude for what God has done. Search your hearts, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he promises he will lift you up. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we would not be found as those with stones in our hands towards your Son. 
We pray, Father, instead that on our behalf, he would have nails in his hands for us. Paying our sins. Defeating death. Binding the strong man. In all manner of ways, your word has described the great work of Christ. We pray, Father, in our lives and in our homes, we would seek to humble ourselves in your sight. That we would not think of our lives as successful simply because we have achieved something. But, Father, we would count ourselves successful for who we follow. For if it is not Christ, we know it is sin. And we know where that ends. But, Father, to follow Christ, we know it ends at life. And we will not taste of death nor the second death. But instead, Father, though we die, yet we will live. Though we sleep in Christ, we will rise to see him who knew no sin, who became sin on our behalf, that we might become your righteousness. Father, in him we have set our hopes. We pray we also have the humility to set in him our dreams and our desires. Challenge our hearts with your word, Father. We pray that it work in us humility this day and gratitude for what he has done. We pray this in his name. Amen.